Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Van Maren Show. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today we're going to be having a very interesting and necessary conversation with Caleb Kaltenbach on his new book, Messy Truth, How to Foster Community Without Sacrificing Conviction. Now, to give you a bit of background on Caleb, he was raised by three gay parents and now is a in-demand LGBTQ ministry consultant talking about how we can address the LGBT issue in the church and in society in a biblical truth-based manner, how we can have loving and compassionate conversations to those who are are either considering the lifestyle or living in the lifestyle without compromising on biblical convictions and the truth of what sexuality is and how God created us. Now, some of you will know that we've had several discussions like this on the podcast. Actually, the Netflix documentary opens up with a scene of of Jeffrey McCall, who's a former transgender person, talking about Jesus to passers-by. We actually had him on the podcast some time ago. We also had Christopher Wan, who lived in the gay lifestyle for quite a few years, discuss his book and discuss how to approach the issue. And now I'm really excited to have Caleb on and work through some of the different ways that we can have discussions about this issue, where we need to draw the line in these discussions, what a biblical approach looks like, what parents can do if their children are experiencing same-sex attraction. It's unfortunately a much-needed conversation today more than ever, and I really appreciated Caleb's insights. I hope you do as well. So my first question about your book, Messy Truth, is maybe give people a little bit of background uh, as to your own upbringing. It says, you know, right here in the book that you were raised by, by three gay parents, which is a sentence that most people will need a bit of unpacking. So maybe give us a bit of background on who you are and what your upbringing was like. Yeah, yeah, that definitely needs some unpacking. And thank you, by the way, for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. My parents both were professors in at the University of Missouri, Columbia, and different colleges in the area. And when I was Columbia, Missouri, when I was two, they divorced, they both went into same sex relationships. And my mom and her partner, who is a psychologist, they moved to Kansas City. They were together for like 22 years until her partner Vera died of cancer. And then my dad had several different friends. And so that was just the environment that I was raised in. And they were activists. My mom and her partner joined the local board of directors for GLAD in the Kansas City areas. So I grew up going to bars, clubs, campouts, pride parades. And I saw the ugliness of how some Jesus followers act acted holding up signs saying God hates you at pride parades, even spraying water and urine on people in parades and going so far as to ignore their young sons who are dying of AIDS in the 1980s. And I just thought to myself, man, I never, ever uh, want to be associated with anything like that. Because here was my thinking that if 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 these people claim to be Christians or Jesus followers and Jesus was their leader, if they're this bad, I can't imagine how awful he must be. And so when I was 16, I joined a Bible study to learn how to attack the Bible, and I ended up following Jesus instead and changed my view of uh, sexuality and sex to the historic Christian, Judeo-Christian view and had to come out to my three gay parents as a Christian when I was 16, and they ended up kicking me out. Eventually, they let me back in. I went to college and seminary and at the ages of 69, 70, they were attending a church that I was preaching out in Dallas, Texas. They had moved there, and both of them gave their lives to Jesus. And so I spend my time now, besides being on the ministerial staff at my church, Shepherd Church, I also spend my time working 
to help churches and ministries and schools understand how they can hold on to their values and stay true to their doctrine while at the same time creating margin for LGBTQ people to attend and hear the gospel because people find and follow Jesus better in community, not in isolation. I want to ask another question about your upbringing, just because there's there's only a handful of books uh, written by people who experienced the gay community firsthand and, and, and then later ended up in church, right? One of the most famous ones being Rosaria Butterfield, um, who was in a lesbian relationship for, I forget how long, but a very long time, and is, is, is now a pastor's wife. And she discusses how, you know, we're all quite aware as Christians about what the excesses of, of the LGBT movement looks like, right? I, I write about it quite a bit for different publications. The Pride Parade is all over the newspaper and the TV, and it's, you know, it's all sorts of uh, all sorts of nudity and, and these sorts of things. But she said that what a lot of people don't understand is that, that the LGBT community is very effective at creating community. And that this is why people, for her example, who leave the church after experiencing same-sex attraction, are welcomed with open arms by this community. The trans community actually has a, has a phrase um, saying, like, abandon your bigoted family for your for your glitter family. What was your experience seeing seeing the gay community growing up? What was your impression of it? No, that that's absolutely, she's absolutely correct. And she's a friend, and I love Rosaria, but she's 100% correct in what she said. And my mom had a very strong community. And I remember one time, just to kind of prove your point, I had this conversation with my mom and I was still in Bible college and it was a, a conversation that I had and I, you know, I wasn't thinking deep enough about her and I don't even know how this came up. I'm not a creeper. I don't ask weird questions to my parents and you'll see why I'm, I'm qualifying this in a second, but we were in the middle of a conversation. My mom just spider webs to another subject and just says, Hey, Caleb, you know, Vera and I, we're no longer sexually intimate. And that's her partner's name. And I just said, gross. We're not supposed to talk about that. A stork brought me. I don't know what, how you think I got here. And she said, no, no, no. I just want to let you know that. And when she told me that, I said, oh, so you're not a lesbian anymore. And she said, well, sure I am. Those are my people. I have friends there. I have relationships, community. You know, I have people that understand where I've been. They've had similar experiences. They, they, they give me grace, they give me mercy, that kind of thing. And I said, well, you just described the church. And she said, no, I, no, I didn't. Why would I go somewhere that would shame me? Why would I go somewhere that would make me feel like I'm less than? And that really, that really kind of spoke to me. And so what's interesting is one is that, you know, my, growing up, my mom and her partner had a very active community. They're very active in, but when my when my dad and mom started going to the church I was preaching in in Dallas, even though the people at the church disagreed with their theology, probably some of their politics, and and definitely their relational decisions, they still loved them. They still wrapped their arms around them, and and you know accepted them into the community. And when I asked my parents what was it that did it, they said people treated us like people, not like projects. So it's really us treating other people like people that makes all the difference in the world and offering people community. Now, for those uh, who don't know a whole lot about this subject, I do want to make a couple of, of distinctions here and, and get your take on them, just because I feel like it's difficult to have a question about how somebody reacts pastorally to, to somebody who is experiencing same-sex attraction or believes himself um, to, be, to be gay or, for, or gender dysphoric. 
because there's such a distinction between what we hear from from the LGBT movement as a political movement, which in both Canada and the United States is is sort of dedicated to targeting churches, targeting Christian schools. Right in Canada, it's about getting you know private schools shut down if they're not the LGBT version of welcoming, for example, and using these pretexts essentially to realign law from revelation to revolution. And so because that's what people primarily see in the media, and that's what they primarily hear from those who call themselves the leaders of this movement, their response is one inherently of defensiveness, of that's them, we're us, and, and we sort of have these two hostile groups that are jockeying more or less for territory. And then on the other hand, you have what Rosaria Butterfield describes in her book, what you just described, and then you have, you know, all the people that we know in our daily lives, right? Uh, so I've had one of my gay friends who's a writer say often like that, that doesn't represent most of us. Most of us just want to get on with our lives. And so it's a much different conversation, but people now see people as represented by the worst members of their tribe, which eliminates the space where you can actually have an open conversation. And those conversations are difficult enough without tribal identification getting in the way and eliminating our ability to actually have uh, conversations about it. So how would you make the distinction between, say, the political movement represented by groups like, say, the Human Rights Project would be the most prominent one, or the Human Rights Campaign, pardon me, and then just, you know, everyday people um, who are in that lifestyle or identify that way? I would say that there is a difference between people who identify as LGBTQ and people who relate to LGBTQ. Uh, people who identify as LGBTQ, LGBTQ in some way, shape, or form is their primary identity. That is their identity. That is their worldview. That is the lens through which they see their entire life. There is no other identity that they have, you know, that it's as important. That's why you get in some people and, you know, conversations and they just see no difference between acceptance and agreement or acceptance and approval, acceptance and affirmation. Whereas as Jesus followers, we would say, no, Jesus said we should love people no matter what. I'm commanded by Christ to love people no matter what. Meet them where they're at and love them. That doesn't mean that I have to agree with every relational decision, political opinion, ethical affirmation, that kind of a thing. I don't have to agree with all that, but I do have to love. So there are people who, those are the, the extremists, the activists, those are the ones who have really loud barks. They're the ones who make the most noise. And you're right, many people, because we live in a society that is dominated by false dichotomies and the us versus them mentality, people think you're either this or that. And, you know, the whole idea of uh, the middle ground, the bridge, which is where most people in North American culture, I think, live you know, is just doesn't seem to exist. But then you have people who relate to LGBTQ. And these are individuals where LGBTQ, their whether it's their orientation, how they sense their gender identity, whatever that is, you know, in, in some way, shape or form, that is definitely a part of who they are, but it does not constitute or comprise their main identity. These could be people like Rosario Butterfield or Jackie Hill Perry, who we're in same-sex relationships and are now married. It could be people like uh, my friends, Becca Cook, Christopher Yuan, Sam Alberry, who are same-sex attracted, but they are celibate out of their theological convictions. Or it could be people who are in same-sex relationships, but that relationship is just part of their lives. It is not 
the main part of their lives. So I think we have to draw a distinction between people who identify as LGBTQ and people who relate to LGBTQ. Now, when we're looking at uh, that description, as you've laid it out, it, it's very, very interesting because the d- identity, I think it's safe to say, is one of the primary conversations that everybody has, has been having, especially for the last couple of years. And I believe it was last year we had Mary Aberstadt on the podcast about her book, Primal Screams, How the Sexual Revolution Created Identity Politics. And she talks about the extent to which people are identifying with different groups, really want to identify with different groups because of the breakdown of, of traditional ways of identifying, uh, the major one being people generally came from from unnatural families and quite large natural families, right? They had uncles and aunts and cousins and all these things. And as the, the experiences that once defined people's identity begin to disappear and shrink and fragment, and she points out that we're in the largest period of social fragmentation outside the context of war and natural disaster in history, you have people wanting to identify with things that do give them meaning. And it's interesting when you make these distinctions, uh, I think of the fact that Andrew Sullivan, who is probably the activist most responsible for mainstreaming the idea of same-sex marriage and redefining marriage, has actually uh, recently on a substack, he went through the, the recent data on the exploding number of people identifying as LGBTQ um, and whatever the most recent letters are. And he says, it strikes me when I'm looking at this acronym that the vast majority of people now identifying as LGBTQ are not actually in relationships with people of the same sex. Most, many people are attempting to find a way to identify with this movement because it gives them a sense of belonging, because of cultural pressures, because straight is considered boring, as uh, and, uh, uh, former Governor Andrew Cuomo's daughter recently said when she identified as demisexual, she said straight was boring and she really wanted to identify somewhere on the spectrum. So she identified as demisexual, which simply means only being sexually attracted to somebody that, you know, you're emotionally involved with, which I didn't know there needed to be a word for that, but she, she seemed to be totally sincere in the way she describes this. So to what point are we seeing a lot of people wanting to identify with this movement due to its cultural dominance and the fragmentation of previous forms of identity? I haven't read Primal Screams, so I'll have to check it out, but the, everything you're talking about reminds me of what Jonathan Haidt has written in The Righteous Mind, or Douglas Murray wrote in the book, I'm sure you've read The Madness of Crowds, or even Carl Truman's latest just masterpiece of a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. If you have not read that, if you've not had him on your on your show, you need to. Because he goes through and he talks about how we've gotten to this point, and he's got his PhD at University of Aberdeen, and he goes back and he looks at Marx and Nietzsche and Freud and Darwin, and he just looks about how all these ideas have been in our society forever. And you have these people, especially conservative Jesus followers, who will say that, well, it just seems like society is moving so quickly. And Truman makes the argument, no, these ideas have been here for a while, but unfortunately, too many of us have been acting and operating as if we have some kind of home field advantage, which, I mean, scripture tells us we don't, you know, if we're in this world, this world is not our home. And so, yeah. And and one thing that I take from all these different books that I, the three books that I just mentioned, and I'm sure it's in Primal Screams as well, is that, you know, identity is the main issue. And, and there is this gravitational pull inside of all of us towards ourself, where we want to orient everything towards ourself, and we are tempted to orient everything towards self. That's why scripture, especially the New Testament, I think, talks so much about serving others, loving others, considering others better than ourselves. 
because when you think about it, when when Adam and Eve, you know, fell, when Satan tempted them, what did he say first? He said, hey, if you eat this fruit, you will be just like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. So he went after their identity first and foremost. And ever since Genesis 3, humanity has had a huge identity problem. And it seems like we try to uh, leverage whatever we can for our main identity. And this is why I tell people, and especially students, when I speak at student conferences or conventions, I'm like, when you place your identity in Christ, it is safe. He protects it. You don't have to fight to try to protect it or to try to put your identity somewhere else. You know, that allows you to be an ordinary person through whom which God can do extraordinary things. And so I think that, you know, we we definitely see that and we definitely see people. and, And that's the fact in which, you know, it's a trend. There's a sense in which being a sexual minority is not a trend because there are people who, who definitely have those legitimate experiences, you know, that they have to come to terms with. But then you also have a lot of people who do want some kind of meaning in their life. And I've been finding this, I don't know if you've seen this, but I've been finding this, especially in young teenage girls. It's getting younger and younger and younger. My daughter is 12, my youngest, my oldest son is 14, my daughter's 12. And at least three of her friends have identified as some sort of a sexual minority, but more of the sexual minority type of Cuomo's daughter, where, well, I'm only, you know, I'm attracted to people that I'm, you know, in a relationship with. Well, okay, welcome to marriage you know, welcome to date, you know, I mean, that that's, that's kind of what they're doing. And so it, it's, it's really, it, on the one hand, it's interesting to see on the other hand, it's, it's devastating to see. For the record, for the, for those listening, we've had some of the people that you've mentioned on, on the podcast to have these discussions from wildly different angles. So we talked to Douglas Murray about the madness of crowds. He actually talks about uh, conversion therapy or so-called conversion therapy. And I believe chapter one of his book, We've had Christopher Juan on to have the discussion. And so the the discussion on how Christian churches should respond to the LGBT movement and LGBT individuals, which is which is is often a, a distinction because on one hand, right, you, you are competing with people for territory, especially when it comes to education and things like that. On the other hand, there's the pastoral approach to people who have who have this struggle, whether it be identity, whether it be deep-seated attractions and longings. So you do have to re- respond to these things. And there's a big debate going on right now about the best way to do that. And it's quite a fierce debate, as as you know. What, from, from your experience and background, do you think that Christians need to know to sort of set the stage for this? Like, what facts do you think many people miss? What things do they not know about the experience that they should know and that will help to inform their response to this from a pastoral perspective? I mean, I'd say a couple things. Um you know, lately, you know, most latest besides this book, I wrote a 105-page document that I give away to churches and ministries and organizations for free, and it's on the Equality Act. And it's basically the history of the Equality Act, the background of it. A lot of people don't know that the Equality Act has been in front of Congress in some shape or form since the 1970s. And, you know, how did it get to the point where it is today? What does it look like? What are the chances of it passing? You know, look in the Supreme Court and freedom of religion, but then also, you know, what what can churches do? 
as far as, you know, the Equality Act. Like, I think, for instance, one thing the churches really need to think through is their whole idea of membership, because I, I really do think that membership is a pathway to a lawsuit for churches, and here's why. Most churches are 501c3s. According to the government, if you're a 501c3, you know, you have to have a few things, two of which being a board of directors, and you also have to have members. Now, the good thing is, is that churches can define membership however they want in the 501c3. Okay, if you just want the, the board to be members, that's fine. If you want membership to just be, you know, the staff and, and, and the board or main volunteers. But if, if you turn membership into something that is open, you know, and, and a class you attend and everything like that, I think that's a pathway to a lawsuit because that is directly connected to the 501c3 with the government and it's a tax break and so on and so forth. It's very, very similar to the class action lawsuit that we see going on against Christian colleges and seminaries right now. So I think churches really need to reframe and rethink about how they think about local church membership. As far as uh, relationally and emotionally, I think the churches need to do whatever they can to create margin for LGBTQ people to attend their church without changing their doctrine. You know, I mean, that without the church shifting in its doctrine, we need to provide places, environments where a person's sexuality is not in competition with their identity in Christ. And I think a lot of that is is creating avenues for LGBTQ people to get involved in, you know, small groups and uh, Bible studies, and even some places where they can serve within the church or with or alongside the church. Not every place, but some, because really, we live in a very justice-oriented society, and creating opportunities for volunteerism, I think, is a new way of engaging unchurched people, unbelievers, that kind of a thing. So those are uh, two immediate ideas that would spring to mind among many that I have. How would you suggest going—a lot of people listening will have will have uh, relatives, friends who identify as LGBT. They're you know going to have difficult discussions, and, and the main question people have that I've gotten as well— from people who listen to the podcast and just from people that I speak with is how do you begin to have a conversation about what the truth about sexuality is, as you expressed earlier in the podcast, right? The, the traditional Judeo-Christian a biblical view of, of sexuality without immediately shutting the conversation down, now, especially because this isn't about, you know, conversations at apologetics conferences. It's not just about laying out the historical case, the biblical case, the hermeneutics, the theology. This is really about, well, how do I talk to my friend, my, you know, my, my child, my relative who, who, who is either struggling or not struggling at all with an LGBT identity or attractions. How do you have, how do you present the truth to them in a way that ensures the conversation continues rather than shuts down immediately? That's part of the thing is that it's hard to do. We we can never say one hundred percent that the conversation won't be shut down immediately, and that and that's the sad thing. That again, it goes back to the extremism, and people are tempted to be extremists by extremists. Um, but I think that having conversations on truth about any number of topics are, are is incredibly important, but especially with this. So here's. Here's just some ideas and some principles that I try to operate by and that I also lay out in the book, Messy Truth. First and foremost, these conversations are best had in the midst of a relationship where there's love and trust. These conversations are best had when the other person brings them up to you in some way, shape, or form. 
If, if you, that's why I, I talk about messy truth that we need to be fighting for influence in the life of the people that we love, in the life of the people that we're around. Like even with my 14 year old and 12 year old, and with them, you know, I'm in the Los Angeles area and they're going to public school and they're receiving a whole bunch of different information. I know that there are, are ideas that are competing for their devotion and attention. And so my wife and I are very, very intentional about how we talk to our kids and love our kids and, you know, how we talk to them about ideas and making sure that, you know, they're, they're in uh, church and, you know, that kind of a thing. You know, but we are fighting for influence. I want to do whatever I can short of sinning to keep influence with my kid, with somebody I love, so that when they hit the bottom of the barrel, if they hit the bottom of the barrel, I'm one of the first texts or phone calls that they make. But then as far as having the conversation, too, if you know that you are going to be having one on it, here are some things that I would do. Number one, you got to prepare beforehand. You have to prepare. It's amazing how many people don't prepare for meetings, much less conversations. You know, you have to pray, you have to study, you have to think to yourself, okay, uh, where's the best place to meet this person at to where they'll hear? Is it a public setting? If they're going to get really emotional, maybe they'll tend not to get emotional in a public setting. Is it somewhere else? Um, where are they best going to hear? What is the best way to, you know, share? You know, what are their experiences? How have they experienced rejection? How have they experienced joy? You know, and then, you know, what are your goals for the conversation? Have like one overarching goal. How do you want them to feel when they're leaving? What do you hope that they walk away with? And then plan out your conversation. Like, you know, you don't want to just leap in and start talking about the truth, but what are you going to talk about before? And how are you going to bring that up? And when you get to the truth, you want to state the truth. You want to spend time there, but you want to spend too much time there, and you want to give them time to respond. You want to listen. And, and then also, you want to have a beginning and an end to the conversation. Too many people let conversations just go on and on. Does it need to be 60 minutes? I would say, especially with emotional conversations, 90 minutes is best. But again, these are just uh, a few of the many tips that I give when it comes to having uh, difficult truth conversations, as well as you know, I have a section in there about how do you evaluate how the conversation went afterwards. Do you mind if I give you a couple of uh, sort of case study examples? Please. Let's take this this example. And it's one I've heard, I don't know how many times already. Let's say, you know, it's it, it, there's parents and, and the teenage daughter comes out and says, you know, that she's, she's same-sex attracted or she's a lesbian and she's now in a relationship with a girl. Let's say, just to set the context, they're loving parents. They have a great relationship. So it's not some... I, it, it's not an act of rebellion and the parents just don't know what to do. Now, the child has not broken off contact. They're still having these conversations. And what they want to know is how do we have these conversations? How do we ensure that the conversations we have brings her closer to us rather than drives her away without, as you say, uh, so many times compromising on the truth? So my first question, and, and it's okay if you don't know, but my first question would be how old is the daughter? Let's say late teens. So the daughter is out of or? Yeah, let's say out of school. Okay. I was going to say, because there's a big difference, as I'm sure you well would agree, you know, because if your child is living at home, you have the right to put up boundaries and guardrails, that kind of thing, when the child is a minor. Now, the child can be in college and still, you know, going to school, but technically they're an adult. They can move out. They can do their own thing. Right. And and then I, I think I think a big part of this, bro, comes down to different phases in parenting. And, and I don't know 
what you think about this. I think that there's a, a part of you that you probably seen this. There are so many individuals where they don't understand that you cannot parent your child in the same way when they are post high school that you did when they were in junior high. And there are a lot of parents who still try to parent their child in the same way. There are a lot of parents who still try to control their child. It's kind of like you go from being, you know, your child's uh, teacher to, you know, kind of, kind of being, you know, a, a mentor, that kind of thing. And, and you're still a mentor, but I mean, you have all these different roles in these, in their phases. You're still their parent, but because they're relating differently and they're growing, you have to relate differently with them. And by the time they get to be young adults and even adults, you're more of a coach mentor friend than you are a teacher. And a lot of parents don't understand that. And the child has been released into the world, even if they are living in your house, they've been released in the world to live their own lives and to do their own things. And you've done the best and you've got to trust that God loves them much more than you do even. And so I think in those ways, in those times, you want to do whatever you can to keep the relationship short of sinning, short of affirming something that is toxic or destructive. You want to do whatever you can. You know, when, when parents, you know, ask me and they're like, well, my, my, my child wants, you know, my, my daughter wants to bring her girlfriend home, you know, or over for dinner. And I just don't know, or wants to bring her girlfriend over for Christmas morning. And I just don't know if, if we can do that. And I, and I usually ask parents, you know, a couple of different questions. Like, here's one question that I'll ask. I'll say, well, if you didn't, would that impact your relationship? with your kid? Would it negatively impact? Well, yeah, it, it probably would. Would it severely impact? Well, there's a chance. Okay. Second question. What would you be willing to do to gain and keep influence in the life of your child? How far would you be willing to go to be one of the first calls or texts that they can make? I understand that all of us have our, our you know, kind of limits and, and we should have our limits. We should have our boundaries. That's healthy. But I think that especially when they're adults, we have to maybe widen those boundaries a little bit. Again, not affirming, but understanding that we're not dealing with our junior high kids anymore. We are dealing with other adults making adult decisions. And I want to do whatever I can to stay in the life of my kids so that I can speak truth to them when they need it. Does that, does that help at all? Yes. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I know a lot of different people who are trying different approaches. And as you say, everybody's red line is different. You know, I, I know some people who say, you know what, you can come over with your partner as long as you're not exhibitionist because I have young children. And I don't want to have to explain that to them at this point. There's others who say, you know what? Yeah, we, we, we can we can go out and, 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 and we can be together. Just know that I don't approve, but, you know, we'll meet as friends. And here's a, a a question I've had from I don't know how many people, and I, and I suspect it's the the question most people have is how do you draw the line? Because you've said several times, and I, we would I think I think all the listeners would agree with you that that the line really is uh, we can't do anything immoral, we can't do anything that affirms, or we can't do anything unbiblical. But what? How do you determine what that line is in in such a fluid situation and in a situation where? Your, your heart is really going to be pulling you in one direction or another, especially as as you test your line against the consequences, as you just said, right? So some people might say, well, maybe I can make this compromise 
you know, in the hopes that a couple of years down the road, I will be that person who gets that phone call and I get to be there for them. And hopefully that conversation will draw us closer together. How, how do you ensure that the line you're drawing is biblical and not based on emotion or fluid situation, et cetera? And that is a great question. And here's one of the best theological answers I have for that. I have no clue, but, <laughs> but it, it, and I'm not making light of it. I'm just being serious. Actually, I do have Definitely some advice for that. But but here's the first thing I'd say, and I'm not using this as a chicken answer. I, I promise you, I know some people do, but I really, really mean this. There is a sense in which it is subjective because you are dealing with different people in different circumstances, with different upbringings, with different experiences, you know, and, and, and each situation with a line has a, you know, a, a very, uh, you know, different feel. So, you know, like you said, you know, you invite somebody over and they're being rude and they're being more exhibitionist and they're talking about things you don't want them to, man, that's, that's definitely, that's definitely a line. That's definitely a line. I I would say, I would say that the line would be, it's almost like the end of Romans 14. You remember Romans 14? Well, I'm sure you have. That's stupid. I didn't mean to talk down to you. I'm sorry. That's not how I meant that. But, you know, when Paul said, you know, whatever you do, make sure it comes by faith. And he's talking about people eating meat sacrificed to idols and people refusing to eat meat sacrificed to idols. And so I think there is a sense in which we have to kind of uh, see where we feel like God is leading us. But I would say the boundary would be this. If we feel like whatever's happening would cause is, is causing would cause us to give a bad witness for Christ to deny it it would it would tempt us to deny our beliefs or to shift our beliefs we have to draw a boundary there that has got to be where the boundary is because jesus pushed the boundaries jesus went to matthew's tax collector's party he was in the middle of it i don't even think the pharisees went into the party i don't think jesus's disciples went into the party because the pharisees in matthew 9 they would not go to inside of the tax collector's house even. And they're talking to Jesus's disciples who are probably outside of the house. And Jesus is in there with everybody. You talk about pushing the limits. He pushed the limits, you know, all the way right there to the part where they're like, why does your teacher eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You know, and that's where Eugene Peterson just paraphrases so beautifully in the message. Jesus says in Matthew 9, 13, I have come, uh, to call outsiders, not to coddle insiders. And so I do think that there's a sense in which the boundary has to be, if it is causing us or tempting us to shift in our theology away from Christ, then there's got to be a boundary there. No, that's actually that's actually very helpful, because I'm hearing too, in, in terms of preparation, is it has to be done prayerfully, which is part of the preparation you referred to earlier. I do have another scenario that I would love your take on because it's one I've, I, I, I never heard until three years ago. So I think the first time I've heard it, you live in LA, you've probably heard it a lot more, especially because you're part of the public school system is, is, is when, when you have somebody who's same sex attracted, say they're in a relationship with somebody of the same sex, you at least expect to have some time to, you know, grow close from that relationship, to seek opportunities, to speak with them, to assure them that they're loved, but also to, to, you know, talk, talk with them when the opportunity presents itself about the truth. But what, what about what you get now when you have children or young teenagers who want to go on puberty blockers or who are pushing to get uh, sex change surgery of some sort? I had one 
one one mom of I think eight or nine kids who had two already uh, who, who had begun transition and there was nothing that she could do. So I find when you get to the T in the LGBT, suddenly all of the dynamics change because suddenly you are to a degree in a race against time because as Abigail Schreier says in the title of her book, the damage is, is often irreversible. You're talking about kids who who could permanently compromise their ability to have natural children. You're talking about children who could destroy their ability even to experience sexual pleasure in any kind of relationship based on, you know, taking testosterone, taking puberty blockers, getting a double mastectomy, you know, getting what they call bottom surgery, which is essentially the the destruction and, and reconstruction of genitals. What would you say to a parent whose child is experiencing gender dysphoria and is pushing for these treatments? I would say what I have said to parents. If you allow this, you would, you are going to ruin your child's life. I've looked parents in the eyes and I've said that. And I, and trust me, I, I, I really value empathy. I try to be, I try to value empathy, but there's a point to where you have to say it as bluntly as you can. Now, I believe that gender dysphoria is a very real thing. I believe it's real. I believe that it, it, my wife is, is a therapist, by the way. You know, I, I, I know the DSM or, you know, I know of the DSM I've read, you know, about gender dysphoria in the DSM. I do believe that the, that the gender dysphoria is real. I don't know why people experience it. I think it's ultimately part of the fall of humanity, you know, and that's not talking down about anybody. Every single person is sexually broken. There's not one person alive who isn't sexually broken, but I do have friends who experience gender dysphoria and I, I only have had a couple who have sought to seek identity shifting medical assistance, whether it's in the form of hormones or reassignment surgery, most live with it and try to, you know, uh, live life, you know, understand this is a struggle and I have nothing but sympathy for those individuals. I, I really do. But the whole idea of kids doing that is just awful. And you see in the UK, even there's been, I think, if I'm correct, as a late movement where, you know, courts have actually been citing against allowing kids to take puberty blocking pills. And then you have young adults who have transitioned, who transitioned earlier, who are now suing their kids in the UK. That stuff will happen in North America as well. It was actually the high court of the UK who sided with, with Kira Bella, what they call a detransitioner, and said it's absolutely inappropriate to be giving these so-called treatments to minors. Yeah, yeah, because, and I think one of the judges, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I think you probably know more about the case, but I remember reading or and listening to some about it, where I think the judge said something like one of the reasons why they made that decision, which you and I would say, well, there are multiple reasons to make that decision. But one of the reasons is because how can a child make a decision about something with which they have not yet had experience? And and that was one of the arguments that I think one of the judges made. And so I would absolutely say that this is ridiculous. And And what's so sick and twisted is that, again, you and I would definitely acknowledge validate that gender dysphoria is real, that people experience that. But there are people who use this, you know, for political power and money. Like you look at a study that the Williams Institute partnered with the UCLA School, Anderson School of Management back in 2014, 2015, uh, two years in a row, where they looked at people who had received medical, you know, medical assistance to change their identity. And the suicidality skyrocketed. And then after that, a lot of reports that were done 
the suicidality did not skyrocket. And it's kind of like, wow, for a while there was really big. Now all of a sudden it's not. Why? Because I think that some people got a hold of the numbers or whatever. I don't know. But you, you think about it. If, if the whole transgender kind of, there, there, there's a whole medical industrial, pharmaceutical industrial complex. Think about all the money that pharmaceutical companies are making off of hormones surgeons are making off of money, insurance companies are making off of surgeries, so on and so forth. If that goes away, there is a lot of money to be lost. There's a big, big movement to make sure it won't get, it won't go away because people don't want to lose money. And there are a lot of people, especially progressive uh, politicians who are leveraging people. They don't care about the people, but they're leveraging whatever they can to get an office and to keep power. And that is sick and twisted. And that's why we are having these conversations about puberty blocking pills. And that's just one person's opinion. You're completely right on that because there's a lot of people who ask, why are the why is the abortion industry, you know, like advocating for these sorts of things? Well, Planned Parenthood is the second largest provider of puberty blockers in the United States. They make an enormous amount of money um, basically selling these drugs to kids. And then what we have to remember is that once once transition has begun, if it's carried on, this takes an enormous amount of lifelong medical care. It's essentially the medicalization of the rest of your life because you're trying to you know maintain all sorts of functions that aren't natural, etc. And the stories of detransitioners are heartbreaking. Oh, awful, awful. There was one article written by a woman recently who just talked about how the title was "My Bearded Daughter" or "My Once Beautiful Daughter Is Now Bearded and Sterile." And people don't realize how many stories there are. But they don't, they never get highlighted because they're not part of the narrative. They're not part of the meta narrative in our society. So how do, how do parents, one of the things I really want to get into here is how do parents begin to teach the Christian view of sexuality early? What do they say? Because at the end of the day, it's interesting, you know, with the, the Netflix documentary, Pray Away, which is on, you know, the Pray Away, the gay movement, you have all these critiques coming out on purity culture. And essentially, these are critiques of the way, you know, Christian churches used to do things, or at least some of them did. And those critiques are all well and good. And I think many of the critiques are, are very valid. But I do think it's also important to recognize that now we also live in a very different era. And at this point, there's, there's, all of the old strategies are, are are essentially no longer in function because you can't protect your kids from any of this stuff in this culture, in a culture that's this definitively post-Christian, in a culture where they are going to encounter this, whether or not you like it. And to some extent, you need to inoculate your kids from the information that they're going to get so that when they do interact with these ideas, when they interact um, with these ideologies, when they interact with these options and these temptations, that they will they will be able to resist and that they will be able to, to to stand firm on truth. So from a practical parental perspective, how would you advise parents who say have young kids and are saying, how can I start to, to educate my kids on this from a Christian perspective at a young age? I would say a couple of things. Number one, a lot of people talk about the conversation. I'm having the conversation with my kids or birds and the beats. No, it's not one conversation. It's got to be many conversations and you got to start young. And so like my wife and I, we, we had to start young with our kids, like young, young elementary age, because you had, you know, daddy talking about grandma, grandma and grandpa and different other grandpas. So you know, we had to start young. And, you know, it was just when they were very young, conversations like this, you know, we believe, you know, mommy and daddy believe what God said. Mommy and daddy believe that God created 
sex, or sorry, that God created marriage, to, we didn't say sex, that God created marriage to be between one man and one woman. And, and you see this in the Bible, we believe this. Now, there are some people that we know, and there are some people that you will meet that do not agree with this. And you know what? That is perfectly okay that they don't agree with this. They can have their own opinion, but just because somebody else believes differently doesn't make what God says in the Bible untrue. Like we would just have simple conversations and then, you know, they would grow to the point where when my son was in the seventh grade, his biology teacher or science teacher, whatever science class he was taking, had the class on one of the first days of school, get in a circle and go around and say what gender they wanted to be. What? Why? They got to my son. He's like, no, I'm good. You know, I'm going to stay right here. And and so, you know, just being able, you know, to dialogue with him about that, you got to start having these conversations when uh, they're young. And then also I've, I've talked to my kids about faulty logic and because a lot of this is straw man argument. While I agree with you that, you know, the documentary, you know, the pray away, there are aspects that are very, very valid and that, you know, people believed and, you know, back, back then and, and just don't work and were bad. But, you know, the premise is that this is how Christians are. And that is a straw man argument. And I've, and I've taught my kids about that. I'm like, that is taking something and exaggerating it. Or that is, just, or that is attributing, you know, the behavior, the actions, the beliefs of a small minority of extremists to an entire community. Because again, you know, you got people in there. I, mean, I can't remember, was, was Josh Harrison there? It starts off with, with Jeffrey McCall. I think one of the key points about the documentary that, that gets ignored is that the, the leaders of, of, of Exodus International and that movement were people who struggled with same-sex attraction and thought this would be the best way to address their own temptations. They, they led it, they pioneered it, and then, then a, a, a decent number of them walked away from it, including two of the most prominent leaders. But the idea that this was imposed upon them by the Christian community is to ignore the fact that this was something that started inside the Christian community by those seeking a way out of that lifestyle. And unfortunately... A lot of the things they pioneered turned out to be damaging and, and ineffective. But yeah, the, the story, the conclusion of the story that they're trying to tell doesn't fit with, with the narrative that they lay out, actually. No, because that is not what is true today. That is not how majority of Christians view or uh, sexuality or act today. I'm not discounting, like I know you would too. That's why you said there are valid points. We're not discounting the fact that that hasn't happened in history. Of course it has. And you know what? We do need to understand history, know it, know where they're coming from. And that's part of what you're saying, where they're coming from. But, you know, the idea of just throwing out this straw man argument just really delegitimizes the whole documentary to me because you're, you're setting people, you're like, well, this is what you believe if you're not affirming. You know, if you don't support the Equality Act, if you don't this, if you don't that, and this is what you believe. And I'm like, no, that is not true. And then you have people like Josh Harris, Carl Truman, who wrote that book that, you know, I talked about that I'm sure you've heard of, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Got it on my shelf here. Yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. And Truman actually just in the last, I think, two weeks wrote an article for First Things about Josh Harris, where he talks about Josh Harris is still all about Josh Harris, where you have a whole kiss dating goodbye he was the celebrity for, you know, the dating purity culture. But now it's all about Josh Harris still as he's going around this new movement. I was wrong. I was wrong. I was wrong. It's still all about Josh Harris. And he's like, not, not much has changed, which really makes you question what he 
you know, what, why he's really doing that. So I, I think that strong arguments don't work. And I think that I, w- I want to teach my kids about faulty logic. I am. And that, you know, again, you, you've really got to think deeper about people's motivations sometimes. Well, with that taste of all of your work, our final question is where can our listeners find a copy of your book? You can go to Amazon. It's available. Kindle, ebook, paperback, Audible, audiobook. You can go to iBooks, Google Play, Target, Walmart, CalebCultClock.com, MessyGraceGroup.org. You can go to, I think it's even available on a Disney website, believe it or not. <laughs> I was like, wow, how about that? Maybe I can get a discount into the park. But anyway, so yeah, any of those places so you can go and, and check it out. Thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you, everybody, for joining me this week. That was Caleb Keltenbeck with his book, Messy Truth, How to Foster Community Without Sacrificing Conviction. I hope you found this helpful. And if you enjoyed this content, please do go over to lightsightnews.com. Click on the podcast tab where you can subscribe and find our podcast wherever you get your content. If you did like this, please share with those who might find it helpful. Again, thank you so much for joining us, and we hope you'll join us again next week.